Hello, and welcome to Florida High School's Model United Nations inaugural virtual academic panel. My name is Sasha Aulis, and today we will be hearing from leaders of the United Nations on refugee populations and COVID-19. I am your host, and here with me we have Mr. Filippo Grandi, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. We have Dr. Susana Jacob, the Deputy Director General of the World Health Organization. And lastly, we have Dr. Mike Ryan, Executive Director of the World Health Organization Health Emergencies Program. Thank you guys so much for taking your time out of your busy schedules to speaking on COVID-19 among refugee and displaced populations. So Mr. Grandi, let's begin with you. You now have the floor. Great, thank you very much, Sasha. And good afternoon to my esteemed colleagues. Pleasure to be with all of you, even if it's in this virtual format, and certainly uh, best of afternoon to all of our viewers and our audience. I would like to begin by obviously reminding everyone that it was a great occasion this past Friday to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the signing of the UN Charter in San Francisco in 1945 at the end of World War II or nearing the end of World War II. We also had the opportunity to observe World Refugee Day on June 20th, something that's really important to us to remember the refugees and internally displaced persons around the world, particularly in light of the extraordinary challenges posed to these populations and to the world community in general by COVID-19. We have close to 80 million refugees and internally displaced persons around the world, with nearly two thirds of those refugees coming from five countries, Afghanistan, Myanmar, South Sudan, Syria, and Venezuela. We also have seen an increase in refugee populations every year since 2012 coinciding in some ways with the real igniting of the Syrian civil war, as well as obviously the conflict in Yemen and a number of other very dangerous situations around the world. One of the most important aspects of this current conflict or current set of crises really that's being experienced by the world community and by some of its most vulnerable peoples, refugees and internally displaced persons specifically, is that governments approximately 75% of state governments have either fully or partially sealed their borders in recent weeks to try to protect their own populations. While this is understandable in many ways, it only increases the vulnerabilities and the problems faced by refugees. If they are unable to access necessary resources or if they are unable to access vital health care and provision of their rights and responsibilities, these populations will suffer enormously. Furthermore, refugees are likely to continue trying to flee largely the global south. Some 85% of all refugees come from developing countries. They're most likely going to continue to try to seek avenues to reach the highly developed countries of North America, of much of Europe, parts of Northeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and a number of other destinations around the world. If these avenues are blocked, then these populations will continue to struggle, but it doesn't mean that the pandemic won't continue to spread. So one of the biggest issues confronting the UNHCR right now, or the Office of High Commissioner for Refugees, is that so many of the responsibilities, so many of the pledges that have been put forward for financial contributions remain unmet. 
perhaps one third of all pledges for this year for emergency appeals have been met, meaning some two thirds remain unmet. For the UNHCR specifically, that's close to $500 million. For the UN system on this particular issue, that's nearly $7 billion. And the costs are only going to mount. So we need to address this in a comprehensive and systemic fashion immediately, but also anticipating that this may continue over the course of a number of years. And I'd like to turn it over now to my colleagues from the World Health Organization to discuss some of the other issues related perhaps to vaccine development distribution, as well as the provision of necessary health care for vulnerable populations. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gandhi. And Dr. Susana Jacob, the floor is now yours. Thanks, Sasha, for having me on this panel. I'm really honored to speak alongside my colleagues here on this really important topic of COVID among refugees and displaced populations. So vaccine development is a incredibly difficult, a very time consuming and expensive process. And it starts with the basic science of the virus and trying to figure out the best approach to finding a, vac a vaccine. And once we have figured out this approach, we move on to animal studies to try and understand the virus and how it causes the disease after which point we can move on to some small-scale manufacturing, uh, then phases one, two, and three of clinical trials, followed by regulatory approval, which is required, as well as finally large-scale manufacturing. And so for greater efficiency, and especially now in this very time-sensitive situation, it's important to perform as many of these steps of this process in parallel. So for example, planning has already begun for large-scale manufacturing for several different possible vaccine approaches, though we at this point do not know which vaccine approach will be successful and safe. And while we think of these steps within vaccine development and distribution, it is incredibly important that vaccination strategies for displaced populations should be included and formed from the very start of this planning process. We need very unique strategies for those persons who are affected by humanitarian emergencies. And it's a necessity that we deliver these vaccines to them in order to interrupt the circulation of this virus around the world. Because all people, and especially health vulnerable populations such as refugees and internally displaced populations, need to have a and especially sufficiently high population immunity to the COVID virus. And because displaced populations often don't have access to routine health services uh, because of you know, the emergency settings that they face, uh, they do not have access to routine and recommended immunizations that uh, they have disrupted. And this leads to these displaced persons being at very high risk for vaccine preventable diseases. Regions that are most affected by these conflicts and uh, these very violent crises often lack access to very basic health resources. And thus they have to rely on uh, humanitarian support to meet their needs. And while we have multiple vaccine preventable disease eradication and elimination plans that are already underway. All these plans really require very large financial and human resource contributions. It's especially difficult because 
there are many health associated challenges that these populations face. So when we look at the UN guiding principles on internal displacement, it really outlines for us the rights of internally displaced populations and it includes specifically healthcare provisions. And this document emphasizes the protections for women and also for the prevention of communicable diseases. A lot of these communicable diseases are vaccine preventable diseases. And so when we want to look into how to best alleviate these challenges, the very best public health approach is health promotion and disease prevention. So examples of these would include preventative approaches such as screening and education and pre-disease management. So while we have all these public health initiatives in mind, it's also very important that we have specific strategies for displaced populations in both a camp and non-camp population setting. So traditional vaccination strategies focus on the camp setting where they ensure that new people who enter the camps are vaccinated and they provide health services along transit centers as well as being able to implement mass vaccination strategies and campaigns to reduce the risk of the circulation of these vaccine preventable diseases. And in addition to that, we also need different and very uniquely tailored strategies for displaced persons who have now moved out of the camps and into urban settings. And this requires that we engage and cooperate with community partners, as well as other health agencies in order to provide the best resources, which may be anything along the lines of language translation support or other types of health services. And it's very essential that these plans include well articulated and outlined responsibilities of the different local and international agencies who are involved in these initiatives. So I really want to conclude by emphasizing that vaccination plans for refugees and displaced populations cannot be an afterthought. With how widespread the COVID virus has become, it won't be possible to eradicate the COVID virus unless vaccination plans include those with consideration of displaced populations. With that, I'd love to turn it over to my colleague. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And Dr. Mike Ryan, that brings us to you. Thank you so much. So I'd like to pick up immediately um, following what my colleague just said about vaccine um, production, especially within the refugee populations that we have within you know, the United Nations um, um, system draws up the question as to who will get this vaccine. And specifically in our context of this discussion, on, this, on our list, our vaccination list of you know, priority, how high up are refugee populations, displaced populations going to be on that list? And, and while we do have vaccines, as my colleague, my previous colleague from the World Health Organization spoke about, you know, even though there are current architectures and, um, and regimes in place to in fact distribute vaccines, you know, immunizations that infants receive or, you know, perhaps not necessarily novel vaccines like we're dealing with now, you know, it, it definitely poses a significant risk and a significant question as to who will get these vaccines. Um, and so, you know, obviously, you know, geographic distance from health centers and, you know, health providers, and even at times cultural, ethnic, or religious considerations, they all play a factor in, you know, vaccine distribution in many parts of the world. And this isn't just an issue that, 
you know, occurs in Syria or Yemen or South Sudan, you know, in the United States. And recently we've seen that in prison populations in the United States, um, who's, you know, and, in all, and also in detained populations on the border, specifically among migrant children from Central and South America, there have been significant outbreaks of the coronavirus. And what's most concerning within prison populations is of the negative stigma already surrounding those populations in society and what priority those populations will take in that list of distri vaccine distribution, distribution within a country. So that's not even talking about, you know, vaccine distribution among countries. There are already um, priority ethical concerns and, and questions that need to be answered by individual governments on that individual level. And so, you know, what we're looking to do with the World Health Organization is first develop a vaccine that can be easily distributed, easily manufactured, and how, whose results can be easily verified um, in a peer-reviewed and in a controlled setting. And that, that is our priority. Um, and obviously our work done with the UNHCR and in our offices at the WHO will continue to support our refugee population and also, you know, help individual countries that may host refugee populations, whatever the size those populations may be, or also host populations in high dense areas such as in prisons or high density areas such as in prisons um, or in, in or in other areas like that um, you know helping them make those decisions as to vaccine distribution um, and educating the public whenever it comes to um, making those decisions at a countrywide level so i'll turn it back to our host um, thank you very much Thank you so much, all of you, for this highly informative discussion. Um, I know we have some questions. So um, for Mr. Grandi, what are the responsibilities of state actors and healthcare providers to internally displaced persons and refugees within the context of COVID-19? Thank you, Sasha, for that question. And thank you to my esteemed colleagues from the World Health Organization for their leadership and insights on this particular topic, but amongst their other efforts as well. One of the most important issues that we're confronting is that when governments decide that they are going to close their borders, they have to consider what are the legal and moral ramifications, particularly in the context of a pandemic. In December of 2018, the overwhelming majority of the world's countries voted in the UN General Assembly to accept the Global Compact on Refugees. There were two countries that voted against and there were a small number that abstained. Our hope is that many of these governments will decide to, in fact, change those votes in a sense or will certainly continue to honor the policies here and will consider the needs of refugees and internally displaced persons in this context of COVID-19. We're also seeing some serious challenges in terms of, again, meeting the funding obligations. Take the instance of Syria. We have there the 3RP program, where it's the Ref Regional Refugee and Resilience Program that is necessary to, in fact, assist Syrian refugees and throughout the region. We're looking at a shortfall of tens of millions of dollars this year alone. In the context of Yemen, $40 million in many other conflicts there are similar situations we're now also monitoring developments in the sahel region of west africa uh, northern mozambique 
obviously huge numbers of Venezuelan refugees, many of whom are actually now trying to return to Venezuela or are facing major restrictions in countries that have taken them in, whether willingly or if they have crossed sometimes illegally into countries like Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Brazil, and you're seeing these enormous challenges here. And what we're hoping is that governments will follow at the very minimum their legal responsibility to avoid refoulement, sending refugees back to areas where they are in real threat of persecution or death. And in the case of countries that have massive outbreaks and rising cases of COVID-19, there may be some legitimate legal and definitely moral arguments that this is in fact violating this principle and creating a situation of refoulement, which again is illegal, certainly immoral, and no matter how much you close a border legally, there are going to be ways for people to evade those controls and certainly for the virus to be transmitted. Even if you stop someone at the border, it's possible that even the border guards or customs personnel could become infected. It could certainly be transmitted. And you have a number of situations where this could, in fact, exacerbate existing conflict. So we're hoping that governments will respond to the obligations in the December 2018 vote on the Global Compact on Refugees and obviously honor their commitments to avoid refoulement under any and all circumstances. Thank you very much. And I hope that answered your question, Sasha. Thank you, it did. Um, for Dr. Jacob, when considering the issue of supporting and informing public health versus protecting patient privacy, how has this pandemic impacted health information privacy rights? Thanks, Sasha. That's a really interesting question because we really do have a responsibility to maintain patient privacy rights while also protecting the general public health. When we look at the United States, the United States has the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which is also known as HIPAA. And HIPAA is a federal law that establishes national standards to protect the sensitive health information um, from being disclosed without patients' consent or their knowledge. And so the HIPAA privacy rule establishes guidelines on different issues such as breach notifications, secure data storage, the patient's personal identifiable information, as well as establishing rules for accountability in the workplace. And when President Trump declared the COVID-19 outbreak as it constituted a national emergency, this gave the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services the authority to waive certain HIPAA requirements. And with this, the HHS provided a bulletin addressing how patient information could be shared in compliance with HIPAA amidst this emergency COVID pandemic. And so now examples of how we can disclose protected health information would be to treat the patient or to treat a different patient to uh, we could disclose it to a public health authority to others involved in the patient's care or really even more broadly, it gives uh, the authority to, to release that to anyone in order to prevent a serious threat to public health. And so these actions really spurred a debate between supporting public health measures and protecting a patient's right to privacy. So similar to the United States, the United Kingdom 
also stated that they were not going to take regulatory action if the controller's data protection practices did not meet their usual standards. But in the rest of Europe, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is also known as the GDPR, uh, is the set of laws that addresses privacy rights and individual right to personal data. And the GDPR also recognizes, uh, in addition to our uh, privacy rights, the fundamental rights that we have to healthcare and health security. I think it's really important to recognize that health-related personal data does merit higher protection. And though we uh, are in exceptional circumstances with this pandemic, the GDPR uh, may sets this tone that we may not, the coronavirus pandemic, excuse me, may not serve as an excuse for non-compliance with the GDPR. And though uh, they are evaluating violations of uh, the privacy rules on a very individual basis. But while the United Kingdom and the United States have enabled leniency of the treatment on the part of the supervisors for violations of personal data privacy during this pandemic, the EU and the other supervisory authorities uh, in member states have not yet addressed whether uh, these issues of leniency and enforcement discretion will also be applied under the GDPR. So with the growing healthcare treatment scene, especially as we now expand into telehealth services and other medical technologies that are now being used, it is uh, it really requires us to seriously consider patient data privacy rights. We need to be able to find a right balance between the right to personal data protection and the rights to healthcare, medical treatment, as well as health security. And so it's really important to understand that health emergency situations should not be used to justify the use of lower data protection standards, especially in this pandemic. Thank you so much for that information. So we look forward to delivering real-world academic information to you again soon. See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fishman Radio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. You can find this episode and many others on our website, fishman.org and wherever you get your podcasts.